Let us now go over to my guest, who's patiently been standing by. He wanted to hear some of the show before we brought him on, so at his wishes, we're now going to say hello to him again. I've given you the background, a little background on him, and he is. Uh, this is a part of our series on conversations with unique minds. He is Professor Ashcott and uh, Ganga Dean. Nice to have you with us today. Thanks, Gary. A pleasure to be with uh, with you, and I very much enjoyed your opening remarks. I'm glad I listened in. I, I resonate with it on many, many uh, levels. By the way, my name is Ashok, A-S-H-O-K, Ashok. Okay, sorry. That's No, no, it's all right. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Good. I wanted to go into a couple of areas, and and we're going to take a, a circular approach to this. The uh, By the end of this program... It is my hope that people have a better idea of how everyone can contribute to the solutions if we realize the power we have and how we can unite that. But I want to start with where we're at now on some levels from my perspective. And then if you could please take your time unlimited. We have no commercial interruptions with this show and share your response to it. All right. I'd be glad to. In our society today, the people who are given the responsibility, in fact, almost insisting that they have that responsibility, are the policymakers and opinion leaders. And they represent about 5% of the American population. But even amongst that rarefied group, there are those who, in the artificial cult of the professional and the hierarchical order, they are the ultimate ones. So it is the strongest among the strong that ultimately rules. And that generally is a matter of someone who has charisma, is considered a celebrity, and hence is attracted by the masses, therefore more likely that whatever that person suggests or does will be better accepted than the person who has been most successful at something. Now, the irony of it is, from studying the backgrounds of the 500 most significant successfully people in the United States, the backgrounds are all different. So if a person makes their money in hedge funds where they've not created a single job but actually taking over companies and stripping off their assets and creating enormous debt and suddenly a company they took over, the, the, the employees are fired, the bank has given them debt uh, that they take off as a profit, those people are frequently at the hierarchy. One example, there's a man named Henry Kravitz. He is with the second largest um, equity uh, firm in the country. Equity means corporate um, corporate takeover artists. Uh, they, they make their money off the deal, not off long-term sustainable employment of a company. They make their money up front, and then everybody else ends up getting suckered in it and really losing. But these are the people that on every single council, whether it's the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, on every one of the presidential panels, you will always see a very large representation of people from the financial industry, like the credit card companies, the banks, uh, the corporate world, Wall Street. Sometimes, not often, you'll see people uh, who are from the sports community, and almost never anyone from the spiritual, philosophical, human rights, uh, humanistic communities. So it's very selective who these people are. They, in turn will give announcements of what they're going to do to help certain groups. For example, how they're going to help AIDS in Africa. And then Bill Gates, which has the most profitable foundation in the world, largest endowed foundation, $39 billion. Then he gets another $30 billion from Warren Buffett, $65 billion. They bring in Bill Clinton. So Clinton, Gates, and and Buffett are going to do something about AIDS in Africa. What they do is they end up giving drugs 
that through pharmaceutical companies that Gates is uh, affiliated with to millions of people in Africa, then that makes headlines, fighting AIDS in Africa. The bottom line is that not a single person is saved. To the contrary, you take a person that is already malnourished, has malaria, uh, tuberculosis, uh, schistosomiasis, gross malnutrition, frequently living in poverty or abject poverty, such as in a a camp, uh, and uh, those people are not helped by this. But nobody pays attention to the results of anyone's efforts. Not not the not this latest um, Bono and and this uh, big uh, uh, Save the Planet. Um, the moment you watched them go to a commercial a few weeks ago, when all these singers were trying to save the planet, mm-hmm. the dr- listeners viewership dropped clear down to almost nothing. They were there for the music. They were not there to save the planet. <clears throat> in fact, the artists going to that were flying in private jets and and teams of limos, and and, and it's it's a farce. So at one level, when I look at the problems that we're faced with, and 35 million starving Americans, 65 million Americans at the poverty level, and another 60 million about to become, if they lost a paycheck, they'd be in the poverty level. When I see 27,000 children dying every day of starvation in the world, when I see how much money the people who are in positions of power are making and what they do with it, and then I think to myself, The problem is not what we've been focused on. The problem is we've allowed the wrong people to take the responsibility for correcting these major issues because there are people who would go into these villages and inexpensively set up anti-malaria and tuberculosis clinics and treat them for the disease they always had. They'd set up sustainable farms and greenhouses. They would give them wells for clean water so they're not dying of septicemia, which is massive. They would, they would have counseling for people who are in crisis of different types. Uh, that's just in Africa. We could save lives in Africa by the millions. But we can't do that with the current model because the current model is a Wall Street uh, model that says, if I'm rich and powerful, my thoughts will be what happens. And the media only follows the, tra- the chain to where someone is writing a check and then it becomes this deep bottomless pit this assumes something good came from it and yet almost every foundation that i see the american cancer society the arthritis all these to me they are absolutely worthless because i haven't seen a single person helped by any of this so we mistake the idea of effort and intent with results and if we had people who are more connected with the day-to-day life that understand the connection between effort and intent and results and had a different idea of how to solve problems that the more humanistic ground level, I believe that a lot of the problems we have in the world today would be solved, and I believe we're just doing more of the same of expecting these people who frequently lack any moral or spiritual understandings, but who are extremely rich, and allowing their richness, their power, and their access to be what becomes, oh, we don't have to worry about a problem. Someone else will do it. Your thoughts, please. Well, that's really well said, uh, Gary, <clears throat> and it really uh, f- falls in line with what I see as emerging global wisdom across the planet, <clears throat> you know, in all our different worldviews and, uh, you know, wisdom traditions. Let me just explain uh, a bit, because what I resonate to in your earlier remarks about uh, aging and health having to do with belief systems, and now what you just said about a kind of money mentality, old paradigm, disconnect, seems to have the power, but it really is really so badly disconnected, at least so kind of incompetence on the ground in terms of being in touch with what really counts and what really matters. 
And that echoes with the deep wisdom that you find across the planet. I mean, well, let me talk about that, because my 40 years as a philosopher, and by the way, even though I've been here 40 years, I feel I'm just getting started. I totally agree with what you say about aging. Uh, I feel my life is just uh, ready to come forth uh, full force rather than to fold up. And uh, if you step outside of one, uh, whatever lens you have in your culture, this is what I would connect with what you said. What is the lens of your mind? We don't even realize that when you're raised in a culture, whatever the culture is, your, your, your lens of your mind is being shaped. That's what you call the belief system. I call it the lens or your worldview. And everything you see and experience as reality comes through that lens. So if you're in the Judeo-Christian lens, uh, belief system, let's call it, you're, you're in a different world than the Hindu world or the Chinese mind or African ways of thinking. And it takes special skill and art to step back and say, I got a lens. Wow. There are other ways to lens the world. Can I really morph into the Buddhist mind? Can I really go into the, the world of qi and Chinese thought? How do I cross worlds? And that takes special skills. And that's really when we become human and humanistic, because all of our great teachers, if you could step back, say, from if we're raised in the Christian world in America, and say, can I really go into the Buddhist world? Could I understand yoga? Can I go and understand Lao Tzu and the Tao? And for example, it means I've got to step back from my lens a bit, get some critical distance, and morph my mind into a very different way of seeing the world. And if you could do that and start looking at our great wisdom resources across the planet for, for eons, if you go into Buddha's teaching, he saw the suffering you talked about, the aging, the dying, the old age, all of that around him, and he was stunned, and he wanted to find out what's the answer to the question of human suffering. He agreed with you. It's not a matter of having an elite philosophical theory. He says you want to remove the arrow when you find someone with an arrow in his or her side. You don't want to speculate, was it poison? Which direction did it come from? Who shot it? You want to take the arrow out. So all of Buddha's teaching had to do with seeing that uh, something about human situation, people are suffering, and he saw it's a belief system too. If they're egoing and looking for the ego lens and uh, separating them themselves from the world and treating everything as an object, including themselves, they're breaking the circuits of deep connectivity, which is reality. And if you can't realize that's an addiction and an adolescent stage, you need to grow up and dare to come into a higher way of thinking that's integral and holistic, where you can experience a deep interconnectivity all around you and yourself and everything else. That's when you become a compassionate human being. That's when you can heal. And that's when you can heal others. That's when you can solve the human problem. That was Buddha's version of it. Krishna is teaching a, a, a very similar thing to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. He's a, a warrior. He's broken down on the battlefield, fighting his own family. He sees his own relatives across the battlefield. He said, Krishna, who was his charioteer, Krishna is the divine voice who is helping him, guiding him uh, uh, into war. He said, Krishna, I can't kill my own people. Help me. And he drops his weapon. And a great dialogue, which is the great Bhagavad Gita, the great Hindu text, is all about Krishna helping him to understand his belief system has led to his predicament and to the war and to the breakdown of his life. And that's what yoga science is supposed to be. How do you dare step back from your belief system, your ego identity, and come into a more high consciousness where, again, you can feel your deep interconnectivity? You know, that, that takes you into the truth force that Gandhi was attempting to live in the world of Satyagraha, to bring it into the political situation to help liberate people. And you could just look at Jesus' teaching, you know, when he saw that, that when, you, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. He saw, again, that interconnectivity of love. 
and unless you die, you can't be born into this higher consciousness. You hear this over and over and over in all of our wisdom traditions. So uh, that requires a dilation of your mind, a kind of maturation, to go from an egocentric being and, and, and monologue to a dialogue being, a dialogue meaning deep dialogue, when you can experience your interconnectivity with your other and your environment all around you, then you know that to tend to yourself is to tend to others. You can't sever yourself anymore. And if people are, are leaders, uh, and not just in, in public policy, but in our academic uh, institutions, I find it pervasive. We are stuck in old ways. I call it egomentalism. Egomentalism is a way of separating yourself and looking at the screen of your information and you package your information on the screen. You've got objects with properties and different worldviews, and it's all going on as if it's on a screen, and you don't know how to move into a, a deeper way in which your consciousness is co-creating your world in a profound way. And I think that really is what I resonate so much, uh, Gary, to what you said at the beginning about aging and disease and dying. So I see this question of switching the lens from an adolescent immature lens of objectification of yourself and other to one of connectivity and deep dialogue and I-thou as a key to being able to be effective in the world and, uh, and to being a healthy being. It's really the key to integral health and becoming a whole person mm. because we don't realize when you're living in the ego lens, you're fracturing everything and breaking it up. And I think what you described about, say, the Wall Street mentality of people with financial power setting policy and intending to do well but when you get down to it, it's so fractured and broken, they don't. And I hear you very beautifully trying to, to, to hit that key point in, in line with this global wisdom. Let me share a different uh, analogy. Thank you for that answer and see if this resonates as well. Today, we have more than 2,400 scientists who have agreed that everything we've been told about AIDS is wrong. And these are people in the field. They've written in the field, whatnot. But now that they have joined forces in a, a reappraisal of AIDS coalition, the mainstream media has simply cut them out altogether, meaning they can't discuss their ideas. And they had never experienced this in their whole scientific careers. As long as they were abiding by the standards that was accepted, then they got published. In fact, cumulatively over 100,000 articles in peer-reviewed journals that these group of scientists have published. But they can't publish a single article on this. Similarly, and then jumping over, I took a group of persons with full-blown AIDS. I mean, they, had, they, they were near death. And with each one, I put them on a holistic protocol, such as, first of all, giving them intravenous vitamins at a higher rate of vitamin C, like 200,000 milligrams and aqueous glutathione to re-stimulate the liver, uh, ozone to kill off viruses and parasite, massive amounts of juices, all fresh and organic, and a lot of spiritual input. I had neuro-linguistic programming, the hate technique. I had a Buddhist uh, uh, instructor, uh, who, those who could not meditate, who feared death. And I said, what you fear, you empower. So do not look at death as an enemy here. In fact, look at life. And as long as you put your energy on life, you're empowering something that can help you. If you put your energy on death and, and pain, then you're putting your, your energy on something that will not get you where you want to go. So anyhow, with all that they got, Every single one of these people reversed their AIDS completely, 100%. I mean, 100% gone, cured, mm. all right? And we had all the medical records to prove it. We had their blood serum before and after. So 
I had a press conference, and at the press conference, I said, well, if I was able to do this, I'm sure other people were able to help. And sure enough, after one year, we found 100 people in the United States who had improved or reversed their AIDS using natural non-toxic techniques, each one different. And we brought them all to New York. We also had a panel of scientists who had enormous background in showing why these therapies would have worked. For example, if someone says, well, I used, uh, I used juicing. Well, then we had a scientist that would look all the scientific research on juicing, what it did to the immune system. Anyhow, we promoted this heavily. Not a single member of the media showed up. Not one. And the only person that ever allowed this information out was Tony Brown on PBS. On 12 se- separate occasions, I went on PBS with the people that I had reversed their AIDS. They talked. Tony Brown doesn't allow you on. He does not beg fools well. So you, you have to have proof before you get on Tony. So his producers looked at the medical records, looked at all the evidence, and said, yes, this person was positive. They're negative. They had these diseases. They no longer have these. And it took anywhere from 12 to 14 months. Now, here's the issue. Use that as one example of how today we are fighting wars on poverty, crime, uh, drugs, uh, terrorism, AIDS, cancer, heart disease, depression. We have massive amounts of resources to put into these wars. But if Buddha were around today, if Shiva were around today, if Confucius were around today, Spinoza, Maimonides were around today, Voltaire was around today, Locke was around today, how would they suggest that we realign and not fight a war against these social and physical conditions but rather offer a different energy to allow real change and real healing. Your thoughts, please. Again, this is an excellent searching question, and I, I resonate to what you said at the beginning about the, uh, the AIDS uh, issue and the scientists who are being disempowered and cut off from the media and the work you did with uh, reversing aging and really having hard evidence for it, and yet it's being cut out. Uh, to me, that is familiar turf, because and it's been a consistent pattern throughout history. That those who question in a deep way the existing model or paradigm or mindset or lens, let's call it the lens that dominates on the culture, it is experienced as extremely threatening because that's how they see reality. And when someone comes along, and all of the people you mentioned, Locke, when Descartes did his meditation, when Buddha introduced his teaching, they were all bucking the old system and creating a, a profound revolution in consciousness. And uh, it seems to me that, uh, that, that that's his par for the course. And the wars we're fighting, let's get to that then. Uh, what, if, if, if we were to tap that wisdom, that tremendous fund of wisdom, that collectively, as diverse as it is, it has a very uh, common consensus power, I think that continues to pick up on what you're doing. How do you shift the lens of people, on the, or there's, which is to say the paradigm, that is us versus them. It's a, it, it is a paradigm of war, war against these things. For example, uh, the, the, the war on terrorism. You know, with, with 9-11, uh, the tragedy in New York City, <clears throat> uh, one diagnosis of it is that it's uh, Islam versus the West. It's a clash of civilization. It is a clash of worldviews. And whenever worldviews clash, violence breaks out. That's been pretty classic. And so when people get frustrated, pro-life, pro-choice, you have a war going on. You can't talk anymore. There's no dialogue because people are in their ideology or their particular lens and they don't know how to re- really get out of it and connect and find common ground. 
so that you fight terrorism with another form of terrorism. You know, and it's it's uh, it's not really getting to the deeper causes, and as you would say, being a healer. So that these great uh, philosophical uh, teachers, uh, healers of of culture that you've uh, mentioned, I think they would definitely attempt to bring out that the men- mental approach, the mindset, the lens, the mentality, is at the very core of all of these crises that we're facing. And that that's what wisdom is supposed to do. It's supposed to help you to become a critical, awakened being and to see how your consciousness is shaping your world. And that if you shift your consciousness in the way that you've been suggesting and they've been suggesting, then you begin to get to the root cause. And so I think at least as an opener, Gary, I would just say that's what they would most of all try to do, to shift consciousness, get us to have a critical awakening. As Plato would say, the people are living in the cave and philosophy, philosophia, loving Sophia, is a journey out of the cave into the light, and the philosophy has to, uh, philosopher has to help bring the light into the cave, which is always a dangerous thing. And when he goes into the light, that's dangerous. You can be blinded if you're not prepared, but when you bring the light into the cave, you can stumble in the darkness when you come in. So there's turbulence involved in trying to open up that lens of the mind, and that's just been resonating all through history. And we face enormous crises on the planet now, and the ones you've mentioned, and uh, all of these, it has to do with how are we using our minds. I'll just pause there for a moment. I really appreciate your insights, because how we use our minds, then by extension, is how we use our resources. So we have more than adequate resources. We really have no shortages of anything necessary to solve every problem on Earth. It's just how we refocus it. If you walk around a hologram, if you're a conservative, you see it one way. If you're a liberal or Democrat or Republican a different way, atheist a different way, if you're a Buddhist a different way. So, but it's the same. See, the, the problem is the same as how we view it. And if we're not willing to view it with a universal eye, then we, then we look through a very uh, distorted lens of our ideology. And ideological references are always skewed to the exclusive use of those who are frequently egocentric and fragmented in how they approach problems, never from the diverse point of view, always from the uh, almost a monotheistic point of view. Your thoughts, please. Well, again, uh, you're hitting a key point, uh, but I would just say this. You would be challenged, Gary, as I am. Uh, my, all of my life work has been, as a global philosopher, there's a whole new area of trying to open up a common deep space to bring our different worlds together, rather than saying, well, there's Eastern thought and Western thought and indigenous thought and Africa, and just par- package it. Wisdom is supposed to be exactly seeing the hologram, getting the whole, and opening up that global lens, a global eye. But today's culture is so fragmented with a vengeance, which is part of the ego-mentalism. Ego-mentalism always chops up. And so if you say, we're we're a pluralistic culture, we're multicultural, and you have the African uh, orientation, you have the Latino, you have the feminist, you have the scientist, you have all the different perspectives, and each perspective has a dominion onto itself. So don't nobody talk about connection or universal eye. There's great prejudice against the even suggestion that there's a global mind or a universal eye or an integral perspective these days. And I in the academic world, which is really very strongly under the influence of this uh, choppy postmodern way of thinking, which is localism with a vengeance, which suggests is we humans are always ethnic, we're always egoing, that's us face it folks. All we can have is our own opinion locally. Don't anybody allege to have 
uh, a, a integral view, a view because there is no view from nowhere. They see the, in other words, either you have a local view uh, that's always ethnic and, and embedded and particular, and you better stay there, and you have your truth, and I have mine. And if you don't, you're, you're, you're having a God's eye view from nowhere, and no one can have that. And there's the in-between possibility, which you call the universal eye or the, the more awakened mind, which all our teachers have been trying to teach us, is that we are meant to wake up and have a more integral, interperspectival view. That's what having perspective means. So I would just say that um, that there's a lot of challenge in the fragmented culture and prejudice against uh, the possibility of having this kind of lens that you're speaking of, that I'm speaking of as well. Could you do this, please? Does your schedule permit us to have just a discussion on your exploration of the universal consciousness or the universal mind for a full hour? Oh, absolutely. I have several books out and three coming right now on this very topic. Then let us, uh, I will have Richard uh, call you back today and we will schedule you if you are available next week for a full hour just on exploring the universal mind. All right? I would love to hear your uh, ideas on that as well, Gary. Because well, uh, I'm sure that on many areas we fully <laughs> much will coalesce because you know what I find? Anytime I speak with people who are of a universal mind, it's as if there's an argument that both are making with the same voice. That is just like running in stride. Mm. You're, you're unaware that there are a thousand people running together because you hear one foot hitting the ground and one mm. breath exhaling and inhaling. Mm. I look forward to our next discussion. It'll be within the next week. Well, thank you, Gary. Really a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And my guest, Professor Ashkot Gangadeen, G-A-N-G-A-D-E-A-N, and he will be back for a full hour. He is a part of our series on Conversations with Remarkable Minds.